Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. In today's episode, we'll be previewing this weekend's federal by-election in Eden Monero. My guest today is Stuart Jackson. Stuart is a senior lecturer in the Department of Government and International Relations at the University of Sydney. Hello, Stuart. Hello, Ben. So the federal seat of Eden Monero was won in 2019 by Labor's Mike Kelly by a slim 0.85% margin. Kelly has held the seat for all but one term since 2007. He won the seat in the election which brought Kevin Rudd to power and lost when the coalition returned to power in 2013 before regaining the seat in 2016. Kelly retired due to medical issues earlier this year. Eden Monero has a history as an iconic bellwether seat. The seat was held by the party forming government continuously at every election from 1972 to 2013, but this record was broken at the 2016 election. And the seat again went to the opposition in 2019. This is the first federal by-election since the 2019 election. Stuart, how do you see this by-election impacting federal politics? It will be an interesting by-election. The fallout will be particularly interesting because there are... Well, there's a variety of scenarios, but the um, ones that you know really are interesting is if the coalition actually win. Um, if they won the by-election, of course, it would be only the second by-election that it's gone from government to opposition. Sorry, opposition to government um, during the term of government. Um, yes, there's been a couple of you know, uh, government, sorry, opposition to third party or government to third party ones, but this would be a really interesting. Um, change, perhaps maybe even presaging the return of Eden Monero's bellwether status. Um, If that happened, the uh, coalition would be cock-a-hoop saying, look, aren't we doing really well? Um, If Anthony Albanese um, manages to pull off the win, as it were, um, Kirsty McBain being the actual candidate, but if they manage to win, then they they will say, look, Against the run of play, we've done really well. The coalition will say, but this is perfectly normal. This is the first time that um, Albanese has effectively been tested as the party leader. Yes, it is. Um, And it will be quite interesting to see. If um, the coalition actually wins, of course, they will take it as a sign and will be saying very much or saying a lot about this being a sign that Albanese's leadership is weak. Um, So it could be a real test for him. Um, Thus, the very rapid change of candidate uh, earlier in the year. Not that they were the only ones having trouble with candidates. And we've seen what happened with the National Party and the uh, Liberal Party with Constance and Barilaro. Um, But it will be seen as a test of his leadership. If the coalition um, lose narrowly, the ALP will say, look, they're not doing well, but the coalition will counter but this is how it normally goes. You know, we don't normally, as government, win by elections. Um, uh, this is just how it goes. It is worth emphasising that a by election is not the same as a national poll, and you can have results in by elections that don't necessarily predict what's going to happen in the next election. But it it definitely has a big impact on the narrative. That's what we're saying here. That you know it's gonna it's gonna make one side look better, look worse. It's um. It is a very marginal seat, and um, while it's true, you know, we haven't had a seat flip from opposition to government for 100 years, and that was a very unusual by-election in 1920. There hasn't been that many cases where the opportunity arose for a government to take a seat off an opposition. Usually marginal opposition seats haven't come up as by-elections that often. You know, a lot of by-elections are held in seats that are relatively safe. Uh, and thus often the party that doesn't hold it doesn't run. So the sample size is actually quite small. And it is worth noting that 
six years ago in the Griffith by-election after the 2013 election, which was the first by-election of the Abbott government um, in Kevin Rudd's seat, there was a swing that was larger than the current margin in Eden Monero against Labor. So there is a precedent for that kind of sufficient swing that could see the seat flip. Oh, we've seen some fascinating um, things happen to governments. Um, the the loss uh, in 2002, after Steve Martin resigned, Labor Party is expected to retain it, no Liberal candidate stands, and the Greens win. Um, this was wholly unexpected. So you can get quite uh, remarkable results um, in by-elections, um, and there's no reason why this one couldn't, but I actually suspect it will be very much Labor v Liberal. Um, although, having said that, I was looking at the list of candidates earlier, and um, given there's a, a, a veritable baker's dozen of them, it, it will be very interesting to see exactly how some of the minor players, and there's a, a wide variety of them, how they actually pan out. And there are a lot of candidates running. There is, by my count, 14 candidates running. So in addition to Labor, Greens, Liberal, there is a Nationals candidate running. You did mention earlier that the uh, state Nationals leader, John Barillaro, briefly considered running before pulling out, Um, but the Nationals are running a candidate. Um, They have run in this seat a number of times in recent years and generally have polled a fairly low vote, even though they hold one of the overlapping state seats. But yeah, it's a it's a big field as you would normally expect for a federal by election. But everyone expects there to be a Labor Liberal contest. That might be a good opportunity to talk briefly about the polls that we have. We do have three UCOMS polls, all commissioned by interest groups, and they all give Labor a very small lead, but well within what we would expect as. I don't know if it technically counts as a margin of error, but the the range of error that you get in seat polls in these kind of circumstances. Uh, but yeah, Labor has generally polled between 51 and 53% after preferences in these polls. Yeah, well, that just makes it very, very close. Um, and I would want to, I would really want to think carefully about, you know, is that going to be viable as polls? Yeah, sure, Labor appears to be ahead, but all it tells everybody is that oh dear, it's very, very close, and we don't know who's going to win. It's worth also emphasising, because it is an opposition seat, um, the numbers in Parliament can change. This by-election can't threaten the government's position in the Parliament. The only way, the only room for them is to grow. Uh, But, you know, they only hold a very slim majority in the House of Representatives, 77 out of 151 seats. So an extra seat um, would be very handy for Scott Morrison um, because you don't know what else might happen before the next election. There's been a question, albeit oh, oh, this, this particular gentleman I'm thinking of has done this a number of times, but um, George Christensen had actually mentioned that on some uh, bills, some uh, pieces of legislation, like on change, changing the structure of tertiary education funding, that he would cross the floor. Uh, the lower the coalition numbers in Parliament, um, of course, the more danger they are in of losing a vote. So if they remained at uh, 77, um, this means that the power of a small number, two or three uh, of the national or LNP members, could really change a piece of legislation. It actually would empower them, in fact, if the coalition did poorly in this election, they'd say, look, see, your, your policies are not working. Yes, Scott Morrison is popular or appears popular in all these news polls, but the party itself and its policies are not popular. 
And I think that's something that we've really got to hold on to is that there's, there's not been this big swing to the government or apparent big swing in the polls to the government. They've managed to hold their place, but that's it. So I think a lot of people are, are saying, yes, you did poorly in the um, fires, you're doing well with COVID-19, but that's half up to the states. Um, I think people are probably still making up their minds, to be honest. So why don't we talk a bit about the geography of this seat? Um, so I might run through a little bit of the shape of the seat, and Stuart, you can jump in with some thoughts. So it's sort of locked into the southeast corner of New South Wales and now completely surrounds the ACT, which it didn't used to do, but now it does. And it has kind of a number of separate areas like Queanbeyan, which is effectively the outer suburb of Canberra, um, is the single biggest town in the electorate. Um, and it made up about 30% of the election day vote at the last election. There's also um, a bunch of towns that are along the south coast. The electorate stretches along the south coast from Badala all the way down to the Victorian border. So it covers places like Eden, Bega. Uh, Bega is the biggest of, of those towns in the electorate. But then it also stretches inland. So it covers the uh, the snowy mountains, including Cooma. It um, then jumps across the Great Dividing Range to cover Tumut and Tumbarumba, which are kind of halfway between Canberra and Wagga. And then to the north of Canberra, it also covers Yass. So there's a number of different centres in this electorate. Um, some, you know, you would have to say it is a semi-urban electorate in that, you know, a decent chunk of the electorate lives in what is the suburbs of Canberra. And so Canberra is a big influencing factor in Eden Monero. You often see Eden Monero chosen as the marginal seat that politicians go to because it's so quick to get there from, from Canberra. Uh, there's pre-poll centres open all over Canberra where they normally wouldn't be in a by-election outside the ACT because it is effectively the city that, that Eden Monero surrounds. So that's kind of the, the shape of the seat. And in terms of the the political balance of those areas, Queanbeyan is the best area for Labor. They also want a majority uh, along the coastal strip, and they also want a majority along the north of the electorate, which covers like Yass, but also the other the other smaller towns around Queanbeyan. Whereas the coalition did better in the west, so Tumut and Tumbarumba, and they did particularly well in the kind of what is now called the Snowy Monero Council area. So that's Kuma and the Snowy Mountains, basically. So that's a it's it's an interesting electorate, and it includes a number of different communities that vote quite differently. Classically, the, the Snowy Monero um, Regional Council is what you would consider classic LNP territory. Um, it, there it is in the country, um, kind of reliant upon um, uh, things like tourism, but also you know farming area, sheep, uh, horses. A lot of people do um, horses up there as well, around Adam and places like that. Um, Tumut, Tumbarumba, Tumut, uh, sorry, Tumbarumba and those places, uh, hydroelectric, but as you come down um, the, the other side of the mountains, you, you're into things like uh, apples, batlow, and places like that. Uh, you come around to Yass, you're into, again, classically farming, but Yass, of course, is becoming a dormitory suburb for Canberra as well. So there's an interesting mix occurring or change occurring in Yass itself. The other side has, well, certainly the coastal side, has more in common in some respects with the, the north coast, uh, where you're starting to see retirees, um, you're seeing tree changes, you're seeing people from um, Canberra in particular, and I may have a second house there uh, and then may in fact retire to the south coast. I don't have the data on it, but it does appear that there's a lot of uh, retired public servants who 
um, moved to the south coast uh, and also a lot of people who just live in Canberra who have holiday homes in that area as well. So there's, it is effectively the, the, the holiday strip for Canberra. Not that the whole economy is reliant on Canberra entirely, but it's sort of, it's the closest beaches to Canberra. Well, some interesting things that happen around the, the fires uh, and then COVID, uh, the fires happened and um, everybody down there was saying, oh, look, everybody come back. We need you to come back and be tourists. Um, some of them started to filter through uh, by you know the beginning of March. And then it was, oh, these people are buying up all our things. Go away. Stay away, Canberrans. So they have a, a an interesting relationship with uh, Canberrans down on the south coast. As any city and its surrounding country areas would, I'm sure. But that's the kind of the shape of the electorate. It's quite a big and complex seat. And I think what we see in terms of where the results are coming from on election night will make a big difference. But that also reminds me that this election is being held in the aftermath of COVID-19. And that does mean... We are expecting more people to have voted early. Um, Eden Monero already had a really high pre-poll rate at the 2019 election compared to other seats. Over 40% of the vote was cast at pre-poll. I mean, that's a global trend, mind you. And it was starting, it's, it's been one of those things that started to occur when you allow pre-poll, people start to u- utilise it. And when you stop asking them why they're pre-polling and they don't have to make up reasons, they do it even more. Um, you know, the, the, the you know, 24-7 economy that we were certainly pre-COVID shifting to meant that people might well be working on the Saturday. So they wanted to be able to vote some other time. And plus, people were travelling far, far more. That's not going to be a case with COVID. Everybody's, you know, if you like, stuck where they are. But nonetheless, they're still going to want to be able to cast a vote uh, at a different time. And COVID, of course, makes it that they don't want to line up in a big queue uh, on polling day with all those other people pot- pot- potentially infecting each other. Um, so they're going to, again, look for um, another way of voting. Problem, of course, is pre-polling centres are becoming as busy as normal election day centres. Um, so I actually think that we'll see a, a big rise in the uh, number of actual, not just applications, but actual postal votes cast. So, so that does remind me we do have some data on that as well. So with pre-poll the trend actually looks like the already high level is probably about where we're going to end up. About a little bit over forty percent of the vote will be cast through pre-poll. Some some pre-poll centres are getting more votes because they were opened earlier, but there's also no pre-poll votes being received from outside the electorate. So uh, that kind of balances out. Postal voting, though. We now have data on almost all the postal vote applications that will be received. We receive daily updates on how many applications have been submitted, not votes cast, but people making an application for a postal vote, which they could or they may or may not use. And at the moment, it's twice as big as it was, was as what it was at the last election. So if that translates, that would mean about 11%, about 15% of the electorate has applied for a postal vote. But Based on previous trends, maybe it ends up being around 11 12% who end up casting a postal vote, maybe higher. Maybe COVID means most of these people will follow through on their request. But it does mean postal voting is a bigger share. And when you add those two numbers together, that's a majority of the vote cast before you get to election day. Yes, that in itself is quite fascinating. And I wonder if it actually presages a, a shift in voting behaviour generally, not just the pre-poll, but now also back to, to postal voting and an increase in postal voting, particularly with COVID-19 sitting on everybody's minds. Um, oh, I'll just put in a postal vote application. And I also know that you, you've 
you picked up the data as well for the, was it Anthony Green's picked up the data about um, who's using postal vote applications and the Labor Party has now uh, started to pick up on this um, because they're recognising that this is a trend and they need to be in on getting people to do postal vote applications rather than just the coalition. It is legal to make your own application form and uh, receive postal vote applications to your political party campaign and then send the forms onto the AEC, which then allows you to record the data of the people who are applying and campaign directly to them. Um, that's a whole other topic about whether it should be legal, but it is. And the AEC does publish data on um, each political party and how many applications they have submitted. At the last election, practically no Labor applications were submitted in Eden Monero. This election, they've submitted significantly more than the coalition. They've jumped from, I think it was 41 to over 4,000 as of Monday. Um, so that does suggest, you know, maybe that means that that uh, more Labor voters are going to cast postal votes and maybe it means that Labor is going to be in a better position to communicate with the people who are going to cast postal votes anyway because they got a form to them in time, but it does suggest a different approach in the Labor campaign. Yeah, and I suspect it's going to um, have ramifications more broadly into their general election campaigning. Um, I mean, we do see it. Um, I wonder if it's going to be something that some of the minor parties pick up. If half the votes are cast before anyone has even you know, turned up at, uh, at 8am or 7am as you know, the poll workers turn up, um, it's not going to be worthwhile necessarily turning up to hand out your how to vote cards. Unless I'm thinking of Shooters and Fishers, who um, certainly their candidate uh, has run a couple of times, has actually polled quite well uh, in by-election and um, uh, general elections. So I would be thinking maybe they'll start thinking of doing their own um, forms to try and you know, capture, if you like, a little bit of that slice to say, hey, we're here, you know, you should think about us. And by the way, while you're doing that, you know, we can help you with the postal vote application, particularly for elderly residents, particularly for people who may be worried about um, going out, you know, particularly standing in a queue. When the, the whole COVID-19 coronavirus stuff is still in the air, as it were, it's still talking to us very loudly. It's likely there'll be a relatively slow count on election night. Generally, the AEC takes longer to count pre-poll votes than election day votes. The ordinary votes on election day will be counted in the local polling places. A lot of these small rural booths will get their votes in pretty quickly. But with a big chunk of the electorate at pre-poll, it will take longer. Those votes may come in right at the end of the night. And we have seen in recent elections like the 2018 Victorian state election and the Wentworth by-election, a shift in the results when those pre-poll booths come in late at night. So we have to factor that in. The AEC does have 14 separate pre-poll voting centres apart from its own AEC office. Um, so that is that is obviously good and will hopefully mean they'll be able to count them quicker and they won't have a massive concentration at, at one or two booths. Uh, but it does mean those votes will take longer to count. And postal votes, well, postal votes will take days to count. People are not required to have sent them in so that they've already arrived before election night. So if the result is close, we're going to be waiting for a larger than normal amount of postal votes to decide the result. Yeah, no, I think you're right. It's not a question of waiting for the absentees this time. Um, and, of course, that does mean that we will have a, a lower turnout, as we normally do. Um, but I actually think most people will be aware that there's uh, a 
about happening. I think people who are aware, particularly from, from rural electorates, they tend to be more aware of what's going on, uh, even if they've moved around, and that people would make an effort to be there, to be trying to vote. Um, so there won't be a necessity for absentee voting so much. They'll use postal votes and pre-polls. Um, so I actually think most people will, will try hard to get a vote. Ed Monero is an electorate with a proud history as a, as a key marginal and you know, has this close connection to Canberra. So I think generally the level of political understanding and knowledge is probably relatively high in this seat. Yes, I agree. I do think that we need to consider how or what the um, narrative will be after the election. When we've had, you know, particularly a slow count, um, as you say, we'll have people making prognostications on, you know, what does this mean for Morrison? What does this mean for Albanese? Um, I think it'll be interesting to see, and we won't have quite the, the way that we've normally looked at, you know, oh, we'll look at where all the votes were cast and how they're going. But, of course, the increasing number of postal votes, or pre-polls in particular, means that we know where votes were cast in the pre-poll area, but we don't necessarily know, you know, why those people from, you know, were they casting a vote in Canberra, for argument's sake, because they were travelling there from Bega. So we don't know where those votes are coming from. It's going to slow down our ideas about, well, what's the electorate really like? We assume that pre-polls and postals, or there's a certain assumption that they mirror the electorate, although postals previously always favoured um, the coalition because it was always thought to be the people who could afford to travel. Um, this kind of election um, makes that uh, quite uh, an interesting uh, exercise. The effects of the bushfires are not passed. Um, we've, there's been a whole series of reports about the funding not reaching some of the areas. You know, people in Cabago saying, oh, where's, my, where's the money for my house? Uh, why can't I get my business back on its feet? Plus, the government has said nothing about what will happen and have said nothing formally about what will happen um, to job seeker, job keeper payments come September. And I think that's going to be have some bearing on the way that people approach the election, saying, well, I don't know what's going to happen. The government announced that, yes, they were going to definitely increase um, uh, uh, job seeker payments or new start allowance by $75. Remembering that what we saw in the Telegraph was only uh, essentially a rumour, and Anne Rustin said, well, nothing's come past me. I will give nothing official about this. Then you have perhaps some people, particularly in Queanbeyan, but also people on the south coast going, well, are they or aren't they? Uh, are they not going to give me anything? Is this, is this a no-promise election? In which case, why should I favour them? They haven't built my house again. They haven't done much for me in terms of the bushfires. So I actually think this, this could, that these issues could be ones that play out um, that we don't really see that much of. And, of course, we're losing community newspapers. So where are we getting our information from? Uh, there's a whole lot of stuff that needs to be unpacked over time from this by-election going forward. It will certainly be a fascinating election night and fascinating results to analyse after the fact. So we're going to wrap it up there for this episode of the Tally Room podcast. Thank you to Stuart for joining me. Thank you, Ben. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. Information about this podcast is available at www.tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Chris DeBro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening. <laughs>